This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. This is where we were this morning, the book of Exodus. And we're going to be uh, looking at chapter 2. And without getting into everything this morning, obviously, but just to remind you that we're speaking about Moses, the man of God, and what a tremendous man of God he was. Uh, He's mentioned over 780 times in both the Old and New Testaments. And uh, Jesus talked about him, and Paul talked about him. And so he got a big mention, and it's worth us looking into his life. These things was written for our admonition, and uh, it encourages us. Let me just read this to you in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, the last chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, verse 10. But since there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, and all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and all in his land. And by all that, that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. And we said how that, uh, as we read this morning, how that the children of Israel, the Hebrews, in the land of Goshen in Egypt, and they had been there a long time. Actually, uh, the time you start to read Exodus 1, they had been there at least 320 years. And that uh, Abraham had made a prophetic promise that they'd be there 400 years and that they would be ill-treated and then that they would come out with a high and a mighty hand. And so that time is nearing as you come to Exodus chapter 1, although it's actually 80 years before the Exodus would actually take place. But nevertheless, God was uh, preparing for that. And we said how that the Hebrews in the land of Goshen, how they had been there for all of those generations and had been prospered and blessed and multiplied greatly and had been a blessing to Egypt from Joseph onwards. But then this new pharaoh who knew not Joseph was raised up and uh, he immediately began to be very suspicious uh, of these Hebrews because a family, an extended family of 70 that came, Joseph's family, how that had grown into 2 million plus people. And uh, so he was uh, envious and jealous of their might and all that had they're blessed they had been and was concerned that if a war broke out that they would take sides with their enemies. And so he began to afflict them. And he turned Goshen into a, uh, a ghetto and began to inflict hard labor upon them. And they became slaves. And in fact, they began to build cities on the infrastructure in Egypt uh, just simply as slaves, working them literally to the bone and probably to death. And then how that, uh, th- that wasn't enough because they began to prosper more and grow more, multiply more. So he came up with a plan then for all the midwives, as soon as a baby Hebrew boy was born, they were immediately to be killed. And, uh, and the idea was, of course, is to wipe out all of the male Hebrews so there'd be no uh, males for the females to marry. And then they would marry into Egyptians and they would assimilate into Egypt. And then as, as a race, they would be no more. That was the plan. 
But that wasn't working out because the midwives who feared God weren't letting that happen. And then when he found that out, then he took another further step and said, well, the whole populace, the whole country was to watch out and to report of any Hebrew boys were born, born, and then they were to take them and cast them into the Nile to be eaten by the crocodiles. So termination became extermination. And we said how that, uh, I mean, this, this is five, over 5,000 years before Christ. So this is 7,000 plus years ago. And right to this very day, Jews is being persecuted by anti-Semites. This was the first anti-Semite in history to this day. And the whole abortion thing and termination thing to this very day is continuing. In fact, the, the mayor of New York just this past week uh, said he wants to pass a bill in New York State so that for any reason uh, there can be an abortion up to the time of birth for any reason whatsoever. Can you imagine that? So Pharaoh is still with us, isn't he? Modern day Pharaohs. What is the difference between a child about to be born and being slaughtered in the womb than being born and killed after it's born? The difference is you'd be taken up for murder. That's the only difference. It's still a living baby, but it just hasn't come out of the womb. But if you killed it once it comes out of the womb, you'd be taken up for murder. I mean, it doesn't, it's not even logical or reasonable, is it? But that's the world that we live in today. And so <clears throat> we've seen there that that's where we ended up this morning at the end of chapter 1. Now, things were dire and terrible for the Hebrews living in Goshen and getting worse every day. Uh, what would God do? Well, as we said this morning, God always has got a plan, hasn't he? Yes. And he had a plan for his people. And no pharaoh, either ancient or modern, is going to destroy his people. And F.W. Borham, and I'll read it again, he says, When a wrong wants writing, or a work wants doing, or a truth wants preaching, or a continent wants opening, God sends a baby into the world to do it. Hallelujah. And God sent a baby into that world and that generation to do exactly that, to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. And so let us come in now to chapter 2. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. Now, these two, it doesn't tell us their names here, but it does in Exodus 6, Amram and Jochebed. And these two godly people who were the tribe of Levi, uh, they were already married and they already had two children. One of them was Aaron, who would be about three years old by this time, and Miriam, who would be somewhere, just not a teenager, but probably between 10 and 12 years old. And uh, they, by the way, went on to do great things. Aaron became the first high priest of Israel, didn't he? And Miriam became a poetess and a prophetess. Uh, but now they're having another child. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now, does that mean if he had been an ugly child? <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, no mother, anyway, at least no mother would think their child is ugly. And even if you thought their child was ugly, you would not say. <laughs> You'd get your head in your hands. 
No, uh, even though he, he probably physically was a beautiful child, he, Hebrews 11:23 says he was a beautiful child. So even though he was that physically, but it was just more than that. There was something beautiful about this child. There was something different, something special, something unique. And they felt that God's hand was in this child's life, that there was a purpose and a reason for his birth, as there is for every child, but for this one especially, they believed. So there was a spiritual beauty more than just a physical beauty uh, to be seen in this child. It says that she hid him three months. And of course the reason is obvious, isn't it? Because out there, outside her front door, <coughs> there's a death sentence on her son, on every son that was born in the land of Goshen. And there would be death squads looking out for them. And there would be people who would be reporting them and so a mother, generally speaking, is very, very protective of their newborn child, aren't they? I mean, I've seen it in here over the years. I'm not saying any names, but I've seen it over the years, particularly if it's a first child. And the mother comes in with the first child, and of course, all the women especially, they're all rounder like bees, and, you know, and they're cooing and eyeing, and, and, and you can see they're just chomping at the bit just to get a wee cuddle. But that new mother's not, not about to hand her over, him over. You know, they're holding it close. You know, they're, they're, just not that, they're just not ready to let go just yet. You know, because uh, even though these are all mothers, but they think, well, this is my first, so I'm just going to hold tight here. And I've seen that so many times. So this mother was no different, but the threat was greater, obviously, uh, because there was a death sentence for her son. But she had him for three months. But here's the thing that you need to see. Because according to Hebrews chapter 11, let's, let's just remind you of this. Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So they were not hiding this child out of fear. It was out of faith. Probably every other mother and father in Goshen was hiding their baby boy out of fear. But not this couple. It was out of faith. And there's a difference. There's a big difference. And so they weren't reacting in the situation out of fear. They were responding to the situation by faith. And there's a big, big difference. And with our children... Even as babies, as they're growing up, there's going to be lots of opportunities to react by fear of what may happen, but we've got to respond by faith and trust God. And so she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, because there comes a point, obviously because babies cry a lot when they're hungry or they need changed, and as they get on a little bit, their lungs become bigger and louder. And so there comes a point when she had to be exposed to the child. When she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dubbed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And a sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now... I love what John Phillips says about this. I think this is beautiful. 
their son is under a death sentence, how is she going to save him? And being from the tribe of Levi, they would be well versed in their history of God's dealings with the nation. And looking and thinking back, it must have struck her, particularly her, because it talks much about her, it must have struck her, well, there was a time when the whole world was under a death sentence, under judgment. And Noah and his family had to be saved. How would they be saved? God says, build an ark. And the word for ark here and the word for ark there in Genesis 6 is the exact same word. And Noah had to daub it outside and inside with pitch to make it waterproof so that it could float above the judgment that was coming to the world and be saved and be safe as long as they were in the ark. And so Philip says, it must have come into her mind, well, how am I going to save my son? I tell you what, we'll build him an ark. We'll build an ark especially just for him. And it won't be built out of gopher wood, it'll be built out of bulrushes reeds. And so she crafted this beautiful little ark and she put, pitched it, dubbed it with pitch to make it waterproof. Now remember, she's doing all this by faith. By the way, you budding preachers, the Bible mentions three arks. Noah's ark, Moses' ark, and the ark of the covenant. And all three of them are typical and types of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saves us, the one whom we are in and we're saved and we're safe. Amen? Here's something else that's nothing to do with what I'm preaching about, you budding preachers. The Bible mentions three rainbows, one at the beginning, <coughs> one at the end, around God's throne, and one in the middle that Ezekiel talks about. So you can chew on that for a while. Well, you don't chew on it now when I'm going to preach. I shouldn't have told you that because... <coughs> Jason Dick will be saying, oh, no, three rainbows. I don't want to get Johnny will be saying, oh, three arcs. Let me work on that. Because <laughs> when, I, when I was starting out preaching, that's what I would have done. And then whatever the preacher said after that, I wouldn't even remember it. I was sitting right now down. I must get something out of that. No, anyway. So hang on there with me. Forget about that. Forget about the rainbows, all right? Forget about the arcs. Here she is. And she's made this lovely little ark. And she did it by faith. And I believe that she knew what she was doing. I believe that she had a plan. This was not accidental or just, certainly wasn't out of fear. We already know that. It was by faith, but she had a plan. It was a risky thing. There was still a big, big risk in it. But it was a plan nonetheless that she was going to trust God that this was going to work. And so she makes this little ark. Notice here it says... She put the child in it, and she laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. She didn't float it down the Nile. She laid it in the reeds, deliberately, strategically placed it in the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And that implies that she had placed Miriam within sight. And all that implies, to me at least, that... She knew where this princess bathed every morning. Same place, same time. And I reckon she took that little ark just before she arrived. Because there was crocodiles in those 
in the diet. And she took that little ark and she placed it right there, knowing that this princess would come just literally just in moments she would come and it would be there. And she had young Miriam strategically placed to see what would happen. Now she did all this by faith. <coughs> Not out of fear, but trusting God that God would be in this. And God was in it. Look what it says. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. Never was a child's tears so important. Never were a child's tears, never did a child's tears affect such consequences for history, for world history, and this little baby's tears right here. So little baby wept. So she had compassion on him. Now remember, this is the daughter of the tyrant who wants to kill this child, who's given orders for the slaughter of this child. And so this was a risky business, but she did it by faith. And God used that woman's great faith to affect the change in this woman's heart. Now, we don't know what this princess was like. We don't know whether she was cruel or whether she hated Hebrews or whatever. It doesn't seem to be, as we read on. But nonetheless, when that little baby cried, it stirred something deep in her heart. And she was moved because of the baby's tears. And she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. It was very obvious he was a Hebrew. <coughs> Didn't look like an Egyptian. And then I like this. Then a sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman that she may nurse the child for you? <laughs> if you allow me a wee bit of preacher's license here, okay? <laughs> I can imagine young Miriam standing, watching. And I can imagine... Jochebed just farther down the road a little bit, watching her, watching this, what's going on. And I can imagine Jochebed saying to <laughs> Miriam, Miriam, go, go now. <coughs> Tell her, go right, quick, quick. And I can imagine we Miriam running over as fast as we like to carry her. I can imagine her bowing down before the princess and saying, oh princess, please forgive my impertinence but could I be as bold as to make a suggestion to you? Could I go and find a lovely Hebrew nurse for that little baby? <laughs> I, I imagine that, well, maybe, she, maybe she was smart enough to say that by herself, but I kind of feel that it was Jochebed who coaxed her and coached her to say that. Go ahead, say it, make sure you say that. And when she did, again, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. <coughs> And so the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. <laughs> what a beautiful bonus God gave this woman for her faith. Amen? Now she's not going to lose her son. She's going to get paid to look after her own son and paid handsomely to do it 
It's a wonderful thing. Isn't the Bible wonderful, isn't it? I mean, you can glance over these things and miss just the, the wonder of the whole thing. And uh, again, I, I can imagine, I can imagine whenever little Miriam told her mother, I, I, I can imagine Jochebed's heart was pounding as she walked down to the riverbank to meet the princess. And, and she would have to keep her cool. You know, she, she couldn't let the cat out of the bag here and say, oh, by the way, that's my son. No, no, she'd have to keep her cool. And she'd have to be very nice. But I'm sure inside she was shouting, glory to God, hallelujah. But she couldn't do that. She had to just be quiet and just be cool uh, to get the job done. And she was. And so Pharaoh's daughter says, take the child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew. You know, the Bible sometimes says an awful lot in a very few words. And the child grew. Now, weaning the child in those days would take no less than three years and probably up to five years. And, and believing that the Jochebed wanted to to get as much time with her son as she possibly could, I would imagine she would stretch it as far as she could, even up to the five years as the child grew under her care and under her tutelage. Not only is she just going to be her mother, she was going to be his instructor. Did I say her mother? She was going to be his instructor. She was going to teach her son all that he needed to be taught because she knew that this was temporary. And she knew that one day coming, she would have to release him. And so as the child grew, she would teach him. Now, remember that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible later, in later years, so she didn't have this. But she had the stories handed down orally and verbally to her. And she remembered every one of them. And I can imagine her telling her about Noah and the ark that God said to build to save Noah and his family and how she built him an ark and how God saved him and the ark. And we tell him about Abraham <coughs> and the great man of faith that Abraham was and how that God brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees out of sheer paganism and made a mighty man of God of him. And from Abraham came the whole heritage that was his and the patriarchs, and Isaac, and Jacob, and, and the patriarchs, and their families, and their tribes. And above all things, she would tell him about Joseph. Joseph, the slave in Egypt, that God used and raised him up to be a mighty man in Egypt, to be the prime minister of all Egypt, and who saved Egypt, and also saved the Hebrew race from starvation. In fact, when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, he spends a quarter of the whole book about Joseph. So that must have been burned into him from he was a little boy. And she would tell him, in whatever way she would do it, she'd put into his heart that God was going to use him too. That God had given him this opportunity because one day he would be a deliverer of God's people just the way Joseph was. That's the way he would be. And so during that three to five years as a little boy, she would be putting that into him every day, every day, every day, every day, because she knew at some point she'd have to release him into the world out there. 
And you know, as parents, particularly as Christian parents, that's what we should do, particularly when they're small, as much as we can is to put into them and tell them the great history of, of God's dealings with people in the Word of God, in the Bible, and show them how God responds to faith and how God works things out after the counsel of his own will and get the children so they know God is real. Uh, and you know, our children grows up wanting to see faith in us. That's what they want to see. They want to see our faith. They want to see, does this work for you? They want to see it in the home. And that's where young Moses was seeing it, right there in his own home. Can somebody say amen to that? And the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. So she called the name, called his name Moses, or Moshe, saying, because I drew him out of the water, I mean drawn out of the water. Now, I don't know about your Bible in your lap, but between verse 10 and verse 11, there's a big gap. And there's a heading about the next section called Moses flees to Midian. But there's a gap there. And between verse 10 and verse 11 is 40 years. And Moses didn't write one single thing about those 40 years in the princess's palace. I kind of wish he had. I kind of wish he had spent a little bit of time telling us what it was like in that palace. But historians tell us a little bit about it. And we have to use our imagination a little bit. You see, Egypt was a mighty, mighty empire at the time. Uh, Egypt was powerful, had great armies, were exceptional in so many areas in their civilization. Even though they were pagan, they were idolatrous and superstitious and all of that, but mentally and ability-wise, they were the tops. And so he's coming into a situation uh, that very few would ever get the opportunity to be in, to be in a princess palace and to be called his, her son uh, and to be maybe next in the line for the throne. I mean, this is high, high office here that he's going into. But he doesn't write anything about it. But historians tell us, uh, Josephus and Eusebius tell us, for instance, that he was a great warrior. <laughs> And that he fought for the Egyptians a fight against the Ethiopians and absolutely beat them. And so he had great skills as a soldier and as a leader as he grew up in that 40 years in the palace. But Moses just bypasses that. It's almost as if he's thinking, do you know what? It doesn't really matter about all that. You remember the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, the great Apostle Paul, who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the great Pharisee of his day. And he was extremely academic, a great, brilliant man, was Saul of Tarsus. But he said, do you know what? I count all that as refuge, that I may win Christ. I count that as nothing, that I may win Christ. And I think this was like Moses here. I could go into all of that stuff, but what's the point? Because we'll see in a moment he leaves it all, doesn't he? by faith too. And so, here he is for 40 years in this palace. In Acts chapter 7, <coughs> Stephen, 
writing about this. Well, let me read from verse 17 of Acts 7. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So Moses, even though later on, well, we'll come to it at some point, when God had called him to take the children of Israel and to go to Pharaoh and say that my people go, he says, I, I can't speak. I'm a terrible public speaker. I can't do that. I'm slow of speech. It says he was mighty in words here. <coughs> but I think that means one or two things. I think it means that he was able to command. His word stood. His word meant something. He was the son of the princess, and she was a co-regent and a part of Egypt at that time, historians tell. So what he said really had authority and power behind his words, no matter how bad a speaker he was, but it was the authority and power behind it. But also, he would be taught languages in Egypt. He had already known Hebrew. He had been taught Egyptian and maybe other languages. And the Egyptians had invented a style of writing, hieroglyphs, like little pictures they would write with, and one picture could mean a whole phrase. Extremely hard language to learn. Even Egyptians today, looking back to ancient times, struggles to reach some of that. It's so difficult. But Moses knew it, and Moses could write it. So he was highly educated, highly academic, knew languages, was a great leader on all of these things. But look what it says here in Acts 7, 23. But when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And, and I should add this to it here. In Hebrews... 11. It says, verse 24, By faith Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Remember I told you this morning, the Hebrew Christians... The Jewish Christians were really, really suffering, suffering from the government, tax from the government, and from Jews. And, and some of them were losing their employment and losing their business and losing their income. And so the temptation, as some of them did, was to go back and not follow the Lord anymore and leave church even. So notice what he's saying, talking about Moses, only he's getting at them, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he looked to reward. So in other words, he says, the writer to the Hebrews is telling these Hebrew Christians, they say, they say, look to Christ. There's greater riches in Christ. You may be losing here, but nevertheless, there's greater riches in Christ. Look at Moses did. Look at all he had, and he left the whole thing. And he did it all by faith. By faith, Moses <coughs> refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than the passing pleasures of sin for a season. Doing this by faith, this was a tremendous step of faith. Now, 
It says he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The Bible says that Moses is the meekest man that ever lived. So I, I can't imagine him at some point. Now, I, I have the feeling he just didn't wake up on his 40th birthday and say, do you know what? I think it's time I left here. I'm a Hebrew. Let me get out of here. I'm just going to tell her in the palace I'm gone. No, I think it would be much more tactful and thoughtful and careful than that. Because we have no... It seems like that he was treated exceptionally well by this woman. So I don't think he would just grate up under her face and say, you're not my real mother, so I'm out of here. I don't think he would do that. I think he would talk gently to her. I think he would go and maybe, maybe just say something like this. I think he would go to her one day. I think he's been thinking this a long time. He just didn't wake up thinking this that day. He's thinking this a long time. Something was brewing in his heart. You know, he was looking around at all the idolatry. Even in that palace, there would be idols because he had idols to everything. And he had no part of that because he was a Hebrew. And he remembered everything his mother had told him. And he knew there was only one true and living God. But there came a point where he had to make up his mind. Either I'm going to go with this or I'm going to go with the one true and living God. And he was a mature man now. He wasn't a teenager. He wasn't a boy. He was a middle-aged man. He could think for himself. And I think he thought, do you know what? The time has come. I thought about this long enough. I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to take a step of faith and do this, regardless of the consequences. Because at that point, he didn't know what the consequences would be. And I would imagine him going to his Egyptian mother and saying, look, you know and I know I'm a Hebrew. Always have been. And I'm a Hebrew at heart. And you know and I know that I don't worship your gods. I can't. I worship my God, Yahweh, the one true and the living God. And the time has come for me, and I've thought about this a long time. I can imagine him saying, I've thought about this a long time, but the time has come for me to leave home here. And I appreciate that you love me, and I appreciate you did everything for me you possibly could, and I appreciate all that I've been taught, and I appreciate the bringing up you have given me. I appreciate all of that, but... Please, I have to go and to be with my Hebrew people. And I can imagine her saying, but what are you going to do? Where are you going to live? You're living in a palace. You're heir to the throne. You have money, riches untold. What are you going to do? I'm going to go to the ghetto. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give all this up. I'm going to denounce all of my rights and all of my privileges and all of my future as an Egyptian. I'm going to give all that up and I'm going to live in the ghetto with my people. But this time it seems that his mother at least and his father is probably long since dead. But he's going back to his people. Can you imagine if Prince Charles one day goes in to Buckingham Palace with an appointment with his dear mother, the Queen. Can you imagine if he said to her mother, I've thought about this for a long time. But I'm going to give up my right as heir to your throne. And I'm going to leave this family. And I know you love me and I love you. I know you've been exceptionally kind and good to me. But I'm going to ha I have to leave. But son, where are you going to go? I'm going to go and live in a refugee camp. <laughs> Can you imagine that? That's what it was like for Moses. Literally, that's what it was like. 
So this is a massive step of faith he's taken, not even knowing how she would respond. She could have turned around and said, do you know what, you're an ungrateful ingrate. After all I have done for you, you're a dirty Jew. She could have done it, but she didn't. To her credit, she didn't do any of that. And so by faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he's leaving. He's leaving. It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. He's left. He's in the ghetto. And during that 40 years that he's been in the palace, all of that horrible treatment that made it out to the Hebrews was still going on all of that time. And he knew it. <coughs> he knew it. But there came a point when their burden became his burden. When he became burdened with their burden. He also felt that God has called me to deliver this people. It's, it's my calling. My mother told me that. And now I believe God is telling me this. This is my calling. To go to be with my people and to deliver them from what they're getting. By the way, it'd be another, another 40 years. It'd be 80 years after what we're reading here before they'd be finally delivered. We'll see the reason for that. But here he is. He feels their pain. He's not just sympathetic anymore, he's empathetic. He feels their heart and their pain and what they're going through. And he's burdened with their burden. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And so he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Huh. And somebody said he looked this way and that way, but he forgot to look up. He forgot to look up. Didn't pray about it. Didn't ask God about it. He felt, I'm 40. I've made the break. I've stepped out in faith. This is what God wants me to do. And I think this is a way to do it. And so he's seen this Egyptian beating up this Hebrew. And he thought... I'm not going to put up with this any longer. I feel that man's pain. I'm going to do something about it. I'm called to do this. Hmm. Yes, he was called to be a deliverer. Yes, he was called to stop their pain and lead them out. But not that way. And not at this time. And you see, this is one of the things. If you feel God's call in your life, and many of us do at times, you feel the call of God, and you're convinced of it, and it could be absolutely true. But sometimes we feel we're ready for it when we're not. And sometimes we start to do it in the way that God doesn't want us to do it. So we're not ready, and we're not doing it the right way. And if we're not ready, and we're not doing it the right way, it's not going to happen there and then. And this is what's happening with Moses. And so... He looked this way, he looked that way. Now, again, I could imagine, he didn't just step in when the fight was going on, when that Hebrew was being lashed and beaten. 
He weighed it until that was over, and he probably weighed it till the Egyptian was making his way back to his home, his barracks. And I'd imagine he followed him. And maybe the evening had come on, and he looked around, and the robe was empty, left and right. There's nobody about. And he pounced on him. Now, I don't know where he stuck a sword in him, or he broke his neck, or he hit him in a stone. I don't know how he did it. But he killed him. Moses is probably not the first person he killed because remember he was a mighty warrior. He had fought battles. He probably killed people in battle. So he was a strong man. And he'd be a man who would, if he had to take life, he would take it. And he thought, I've got to do this. I'm the deliverer. They need delivered, so this is the way to do it. But it wasn't. It wasn't God's way. In other words, it was his flesh. He wasn't being moved by the Spirit. It was his flesh. He felt emotion, and he felt passion, but it was only his flesh. And that's a danger sometimes, even when we're doing the will of God, that we feel the passion and we feel the emotion, but sometimes it's our flesh, and we step out and we miss it entirely. And he missed it completely at this point. His intentions were good, no question about that, but he missed it here. And so he killed the Egyptian, and he hid him in the sand. <laughs> Chuck Swindle said about that, he says, whenever we blow it, and whenever we miss, and whenever we do it wrong for God, and we realize we hide it in the sand, we cover it up. We don't want anybody to know. And I'm sure all of us at some point has messed up and we've tried to cover it up. But you know what? It's always found out at some point. We better just own up right away. And so he hid him in the sand. And then when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and he said to one who did the wrong, are you striking your companion? It's bad enough that the Egyptians beating up a Hebrew. Here's a Hebrew beating up a Hebrew. It's bad enough when the world beats us up. But it's even worse when the church beats us up. But notice verse 14. Then he said... Who made you a prince and a judge over us? <laughs> they knew who he was. I mean, he looked every part an Egyptian because he'd been there for 40 years, probably dressed like one too. So he says, who made you a prince over us? This is none of your business, mate. Clear off. Don't stick your nose in here. This is a private fight. <laughs> huh? You can't be our judge. Sure, you were the prince for 40 years in Egypt. Now you're coming in here thinking you're going to take over here. You're going to judge us. You're going to rule over us. Clear off. <laughs> Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Ah. He looked left and he looked right. And he didn't look up, and he didn't realize that somebody standing behind a bush somewhere actually saw him. <laughs> I'm sure your symbol will find you out then. But notice here what Stephen says in Acts 7 about that. Stephen said in Acts 7, 23, Now when he was 40 years old, it came in his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. 
Save one of them suffer wrong. He defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren, listen to this, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. You see, sometimes if we go after the will of God and we're passionate about doing the will of God, sometimes you think everybody is going to understand it, but they're not. Your own family might not understand it. Your best friends may not understand it. And he assumed, I'm going to go. God's called me to be the great deliverer. I'm going to do this, and everybody will understand this. But they didn't. For he supposed his brother would have understood that God had delivered them by his hand, but they did not understand. Huh. <coughs> you can't assume that everybody's going to understand your calling. Some will, some won't. But don't expect everybody to, because they won't. I remember whenever I left my employment, my boss thought I was nuts. He's a lovely man, and he wasn't rude, and he was very nice. And he says to me, what in the world are you doing? He says, you're in a great job. You're well paid. You just live around the corner. And he says, you're going off somewhere, don't know what's going to happen, and you're giving up all the security, and you've got a wee family, and you've got a mortgage. What are you thinking? <coughs> and it's very hard to tell an unsaved man about the will of God. I says, well, I believe I'm doing right. I says, I believe I'm doing the right thing here. Oh, well, good luck, he says. <laughs> Do you know what? I did the right thing. And that place where I work is all closed. And all 2,000 people are paid off. And he lost his job. And everybody lost their jobs. So that security talked about was gone. And after 40 years, I'm still going on in my job. <laughs> so trust God, no matter what. And so he said, did you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Did you notice there, there says Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. But in Hebrews 11, it says in verse 27, just, just in case you misunderstand the reading, reading this. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured a seeing him who is invisible. Now, that's not a contradiction, by the way. That's talking about the second time he left Egypt, not this first time. The second time when he left Egypt with a mighty hand, when God brought them all out under his leadership, that's when it means he left not fearing the king. But here, the first time, he's most definitely fearing the king because Pharaoh's out to kill him again. And so he flees to Midian. Interestingly, geographically, it's a long journey and it's a difficult terrain to go through. But strangely enough, it's almost the route that later on, 40 years after this, where he takes the children of Israel 
from Egypt to the promised land. And so he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs with water for their fathers, to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. Shepherds didn't have a very good name. Even in Jesus' day, they didn't have a good name. They're going to be a rough lot. The Egyptians hated shepherds, by the way. Remember whenever Joseph called his family to come down? They were all shepherds. He says, whatever you do, don't tell Pharaoh you're a shepherd. They hated sheep. They were an abomination to them. So anybody looked after them. Just the way Jews hate pigs, they're an abomination to them. So the Egyptians hated shepherds. He says, don't tell them. Of course, they went ahead and did that anyway, by the way. They didn't listen to him. He says, don't tell them you're shepherds. Tell them you have livestock. <laughs> but anyway... That's another story. And so, here he is in Midian. He's down at the well. And this man's daughter comes to feed their water, their sheep. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And it says Moses stood up. It just doesn't mean he got up from the well. It means he stood up against them. <laughs> he just had killed an Egyptian. So a few shepherds wasn't going to bother him. I mean, this man was a warrior, and he probably was tall and strong and fit. So he drove them away. Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Reuel, Reuel is Jethro. Reuel was maybe his, his birth name, but Jethro was maybe his official name. But he's better known as Jethro. But Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? And why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Eastern hospitality. Then Moses was content to live with the man. And he gave Zipporah, which was his eldest daughter, Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And so obviously a bit of time had lapsed. It wasn't the next day, but a time had lapsed. And he gave him Sipporah, his eldest daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son, and he called his near name Gershom, which means stranger in the land. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Actually, she gave him two sons. Eleazar was the next one. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. They've had 80 years of bondage now, 80 years in this ghetto, making bricks of mortar, building cities, slaves. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. When it says God remembered, it doesn't mean God had forgotten. That's a malfunction of our human brains. But it means it's time for God to act. And, I, and, and Genesis 6 says God remembered Noah after 150 days. And the rain, God remembered Noah. Not that they'd ever forgotten about him, but it was time to act, to do something. That's what it means. So God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. In the 400 years that Abraham prophesied, are drawn to a close. It's now time for God to act.
And Moses is the man that God's going to use. And here he is, not in Egypt any longer. He's in Midian, joined up with Jethro and his family, married Zipporah, his two sons. He's looking after sheep. He's a shepherd on the backside of the desert. And God comes to him in a miraculous way in the burning bush. And that will form part of our next message. All of this is miraculous, what God does with this man. And it's tremendous. And we're going to see how God appeared to him and how he argued the toss with God. When God says, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And so that time is drawing close. I, I, I love biographical messages because it's real life, isn't it? It's real life. It's flesh and bone people that God's dealing with. And as I said this morning, the thing that we have in common with all these heroes of faith is our God-given faith that we have. We'll not be asked to deliver a nation like Moses was, but we'll be asked to do certain things that we'll need faith for in our lives, whether that's raising our kids or whether that's whatever that may be or in God's work, whatever, and we'll have to use our faith to do that, our God-given faith. But if we do and when we do, God will bless and God will touch. You see, whenever, we'll close with this, whenever Jochebed sent Moses away into the world that was Egypt, at that point she had to trust God she could do no more and all of us with our children there comes a point whenever they have to go out into the wide world and we have done all we can for them spiritually as much as we could and all we can do is trust God and pray for them that's all we can do and we're going to trust God that every single one of them at some point it took Moses 40 years 40 years before he started to respond all right so be encouraged parents be encouraged. They may be out there. They may be walking on the wrong path. They may be as far from God as you think they possibly could be. But you never know. God is a way of putting a hook in their jaw and drawing them back again. Amen. Amen? And God can bring them back into the fold. And God can still use them for his glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your precious word that encourages, that inspires, that challenges that comforts, that guides us. And we thank you for these stories of the heroes of faith. Men and women just like us, and yet they trusted you and God did great things with them. And so we bless you for that, and we give you thanks for all that you have done with all of us in our small way, where we had to trust you, and we believed in you, and you came through for us. And so, Lord, we lay all of our children at your feet tonight and our grandchildren, wherever they may be tonight, whatever they may be up to tonight. Lord, there's not a one of them that's out of your sight. There's not a one of them that's beyond what you can do. And your Holy Spirit can reach them where nobody else can reach them. And we pray, Lord, that you will do this for your honor and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content. 
available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal, or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.